All your base are belong to us. Welcome to Fake Geek Girls, a podcast looking at nerdy pop culture from both a fan and critical perspective, encouraging the things we love to do better. I'm Missy. I'm a writer. And I just want to say I'm so grateful to Legends of Tomorrow for providing the like empathetic and like just like respectful representation that I've been looking for my entire life. And of course, I'm talking about Gary, the number one representation of John Constantine thirst I have ever seen in my life. I've waited my whole life for this. Thank you, Legends of Tomorrow. I'm a marketer and Gary can suck it. What's your name? My name's Mary. <laughs> <laughs> my name's Mary. I'm a marketer and Gary can suck it. He can. But not probably. in the way. And probably ways. did. Yeah. Yep. Um, today we're going to be talking about Legends of Tomorrow which is a DC TV show set in the Arrowverse, which is oddly named because I don't think of Arrow as being the most impactful show among them. It was the first one. But yeah, it was the first one. Uh, I, th- I think I feel like Supergirl is the one I hear about the most, but what do I know? I think Arrow's the... I think a lot of writers from Arrow also work on everything else. I see. A lot of writers from Arrow work on this. I went and looked at a bunch of the writers. Interesting. So Legends of Tomorrow follows a group of superheroes and or people who are like who are just really good at things uh who are conscripted by the time master rip hunter who is played by arthur darville which only adds to the like doctor who-ness of this whole thing because now rory's the doctor but i don't mean rory the character in legends of tomorrow i mean rory from doctor who confusing i mean time travel is confusing it is it's true and this is clearly time travel um so they're conscripted by this time master rip hunter to save the world and protect it from this horrible guy who looks like a mixture of billy mitchell and a (laughs) vampire from what we do in the shadows um and his name is vandal savage (laughs) and then there's also they also have to stop damien dark another just solid name uh and then some aberrations and then magical creatures because things get progressive progressively complicated as the show goes on which like you know cool fun sci-fi premise but actually throw all that out the window because it's actually just a found family show and goofy fanfic shenanigans which is really how they should be selling it stop with this time travel cool superheroes nonsense because that is not what the show i think that they stopped i mean look at the amount of time travel they do in the last season compared to the the amount they do previously because there's so many times i'm like why don't they just travel back in time and figure out who stole this person well because reasons I know. But <laughs> There's a time travel nonsense. Yes, but I feel like they they bent those rules a lot more oh, before, yeah. and now there's like they're not leaning so heavily on time travel. Well, they're still they're still time traveling, but time traveling is more like a fun device rather than like it. Yeah, it's not a like one of the reasons I didn't really we're jumping ahead, but one of the reasons I didn't really like the first season that much was because I felt like time travel was underused because they were primarily just traveling to the future and. I just am not a person who is all that excited about time travel to the future. Like it happens in a lot of media and I'm never impressed by it. I it like literally until recently, like in the last couple of years, I never thought about tra- traveling to the future. I mean, there was like back to the future, like, in the, but like anytime I thought of time travel, it's always to the past. And for me, it's always to like the prehistoric era. <laughs> That's the only place I want to see dinosaurs. Um, so to start off with, I wanted to do some comparisons between this show and other shows because I think that by nature of the show being in the Arrowverse and being about superheroes and like being about time travel, there are all these expectations for what it is. And then there's also the fact that like 
first season's not very good. And um, I have to say, I will just, before we even get into the episode, I'm in love with this show now. Like, it's legit one of my favorite shows. Is that because there is an entire season where John Constantine is played perfectly? Maybe. But I loved it before that, too. So, That's true. Um, but the the whole John Constantine Const- constant thing the whole john constantine thing certainly doesn't hurt but like the show has a lot going for it otherwise that i really like um but the show is really under i it's not necessarily underappreciated because there's only there seems to be only two okay maybe three types of people who engage with legends of tomorrow haven't watched it don't want to watch it watch the first season hate it or love it (laughs) <laughs> there's there's very few like in between there um and that kind of colors like because i don't know a whole lot of people that are like big legends of tomorrow fans like there aren't a lot of people talking about it consistently there were like two people i follow on twitter who were in love with it mm-hmm. um which i don't is, know anyone which was part of the reason i wanted to watch it i know friends who have watched it but don't talk about it about it very much and then there's like people who when i mentioned that i'm watching it they go oh my god it's so good but they mm. have never mentioned it i had watched it before this but i had like forgotten everything yeah because it wasn't very good yeah the first season so just to get into that the first season actually reminds me really strongly of like the first not the very first season but the the christopher eccleston season of doctor who before it transitions into more of like the david Tennant doctor who in terms of like seriousness and shenanigans and not necessarily the budget but like the the feel of the budget you know, because Doctor Who has kind of been traditionally low budget, and this show has some pretty wonky CGI. Um, but they lean into it, and it's wonderful. Exactly, they start leaning into it, and it gets a lot better. But like, just the tone of of like the first season in particular is pretty serious through most of it. But then they'll toss in uh, the Wild West episode and the 1950s episode, which I were like the 50s episode. Yeah, like those ones, like those were like real standouts in the first season. And I was like, if this is where the show is going, then I guess I see why people like it so much. Yeah, I was, I was like dreading this <laughs> because the first season I, I kind of, I could not watch it. I did. But it was hard. I put it on and then I would like play a game. Yeah, while I played I was my Switch it. while I was watching it. Yeah. Um, which which worked really well because there were parts of the show that I liked and there were like character like in the first season I really liked Snart. In part because oh, his yeah. name is Snart and it cracks me up anytime they say his name. I didn't ha- the only person I was really into was Rip, and that's because I found him really attractive. I did not. Oh, uh, well. You live and you learn. You you live and you mm. learn. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what I learned from that. <laughs> that you're wrong. That I'm wrong. Um and so, like, I and I mean that that Doctor Who comparison in like kind of every conceivable way. It's really indulgent. It feels low budget. It's kind of sloppy, but it's also really earnest in what it's doing. Even in that first season, like the first season is probably the most like it's definitely the worst of the seasons. But it's also still pretty earnest in what it's doing. Like it takes its its villain named Vandal Savage seriously. All the stuff like that it does, it does seriously, and and that's to mixed effect. Like we'll get into more like how it works in later seasons versus how it works in the first season a bit later. But it, it's never a show that seems to be made cynically. You know what I mean? It's definitely the first season is not great, but it's does, it still doesn't feel like this was made to capitalize on something. No, it definitely feels like they're trying, they're trying different stuff. Right. Seeing what they're throwing spaghetti to the wall and seeing what sticks. Yeah. And when it's done, it's perfection. Right. When it sticks, we're all sticking. We're all sticking. We're all spaghetti. We're all spaghetti in this world. <laughs> um, so 
season one in particular seems like it's trying to fit into that grittier tone of the DC TV universe. But even so, there's still that sense of goofiness about it just by by virtue of what it is. Um, it just is. It doesn't lean into the goofiness until later seasons. Um, and to be honest, I find it really interesting that this show doesn't have a super. De- I mean, it does have a devoted fan base. Everybody I know. Hmm? Isn't it a small fan base? That's the impression I get is that it's it's a much smaller fan base than some of the other shows. But like, it 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 really re- it seems to me as a, like a show that like Doctor Who fans or even Supernatural fans would like, gravitate to. But it's just not. I seeing can't see. That. Well, I guess I stopped watching Supernatural because Supernatural was a little bit more serious when I was. We're gonna get it. I'm gonna explain exactly why I think that is. I like their Supernatural joke that they made in it, though. Did you? Which one was that? They said Nazkin Supernatural something. It was like when they were like breaking the fourth wall, like Supernatural. Mm. That seems to work. Yeah, yeah, right. Okay, there were a lot of those jokes in season four. Very good. Um, and like to be fair, I don't know how popular Doctor Who is anymore. Um, I'm definitely thinking back to like when I used Tumblr. Until which is like 2012 when we first moved out like first yeah that was like 2007 to 2012 yeah um ish uh but this very much feels like something that would have a dedicated fan base fan base and like it does people who love the show really really love the show but it's not as loud or as widespread a fan base as i would expect i mean think about when you go to conventions how many times have you seen fan art how often do you see fan art never at least i guess that i don't know i don't know yeah, what they look but like there's plenty of things you don't know that you know where is, fan art is my thirsty john constantine art that's a good question who's drawing th- like pin up john constantine at me immediately <laughs> um it's so dirty and not a, like sexual way but no like, he's just a, like he just crawl do you love when he literally slam dunks himself into a dumpster in hell <laughs> yeah. and we watch it happen like twice <laughs> it happens again and <laughs> i wanted to say something about it but you weren't there yet and i couldn't say john constantine just slam dunked himself into a dumpster in hell because <laughs> that was a spoiler so good. uh anyway so I think there's a few reasons why this this isn't quite as like widespread as some other things like the MCU or even even the DC movie universe. I, it still has like very passionate fans. Um, and part of it, I think, is obscure characters. Like, I don't know who any of these characters are. None of them. To be fair, not a big, not a huge DC person. Um, so I've never heard of Heatwave or Captain Cold or uh, what's firestorm i don't know who these people are no idea no clue um so there was none of that to to draw me into the show right now that said people said john constantine was in the show and i was like well okay hold up yeah every time i was like missy why are we doing this she's like i really just want to see john constantine and, and i had to do it and i had heard it was so the episode i heard about in particular was um one it was one of the grod ones it was like I saw somebody tweeting about it and they're like, um, a giant gorilla just tried to kill Obama. And I was like, what? <laughs> what is what is this show? And then like, I think the same person was like, I don't understand why nobody's watching Legends of Tomorrow. <laughs> and I was like, okay, that sounds that sounds interesting, right? And then I had also heard that like John Constantine actually gets to be bisexual in the show and he's not the only bisexual character. And, and it's not like a passing reference. Right. And so... Um, there was a lot about it that made me want to watch it. But like you put a character I like in a show and I'm more likely to watch that show, especially because I watched the Constantine show and I didn't like it. Um, they're also kind of cast offs of the other Arrowverse shows. So like John Constantine comes from his own show that didn't do very well. I don't think because David Escort sucks. Um, 
you have like Captain Cold is is pretty big in Flash. I don't know. I think. Um, obviously, you have the crossover episodes. You have Sarah's from Arrowverse. Sarah's from yeah. Like you have all these characters who are kind of like B list characters or C list characters from other Arrowverse shows. So like, who are these people and why am I supposed to care about them? Um, and and like we mentioned, the first season, it's okay. Like it's not the it's definitely not the worst TV I've ever seen, and. I thought about this a lot because I was watching it and I didn't really like it. But at the same time, I didn't hate it. And it, I think part of the thing is that this feels like a relic almost. It feels because I grew up watching like crappy sci-fi shows on Fox, um, like Mutant X, which I loved growing up. Like I was like, oh, yeah, I'm here for this. Um, and that's just it, I don't even know. It may actually be X-Men or it's X-Men with the serial numbers filed off. I think that's right. It's something like that. Anyway, it's tangentially related to X-Men. But anyway. Shows like Mutant X, shows like Andromeda, uh, even Firefly. Like, I grew up watching those shows, and they all have this kind of similar feeling to them of, like, you're trying to do something here, and you just don't... It's just not there, but, like, there's something enjoyable about it. And that's really how it felt to me. The nice thing about Legends of Tomorrow is that there are four seasons, and you can just straight up skip that first one. Like, you don't you don't have to watch it. There's some, like, backstory that you'll miss, but, like, just go just- on... Go on Wikipedia. Yeah. It's, it's Cliff notes it. Yeah, watch the fifties episode and the episode where they go to the old west. Um, because those ones are fun. And Sarah looks great as a cowgirl. It's very true. Yeah, she looks great. Um also, so, I love Jenna Hex. I do too. I do He's too. He's in that one, right? Yeah. 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 Um, so it, it like the show had a rough start. It's got all these B-list characters, and it's super not prestige TV. So prestige TV is like the big thing right now, right? Like Everybody wants to be Game of Thrones or whatever other. Pres- I don't watch. Pres- I watch The Good Place, Brooklyn Nine Nine. Um, I don't know. Breaking Bad, things that are like serious and that are winning awards. Yeah, you know, yeah, that kind of thing. Handmaid's Tale. Yeah, that's a good example. Even though it gets bad, right? I'm not watching the third season. Yeah, it's. It's like Legends of Tomorrow is not that. The show isn't interested in the complex plots of Game of Thrones. Unlike The Good Place, it had a super slow start. And then it leans really hard into goofiness and charm rather than trying to be impressive on any level. It's not like a gorgeous show. Like the CGI is not super there. Um, It is a show about a lot of hot people. I was going to say gorgeous in a different way. Yeah, there's a lot of hot people in the show. It's very true. Um. And like they just, I feel like they just get hotter too. Like everybody gets it's, hotter. It's like when you you like someone, they just get more attractive. Well, and they keep like changing people's hair, and it looks. Oh better. my gosh, they changed Ava's hair, and she didn't look like a doll anymore. <laughs> she looked like a doll wearing a wig, and I was just like, please, somebody stop putting volume in her hair. That's what they were doing, <laughs> and it looks so much better at the end of the last season. Yeah, um, the CGI is like okay at best there's some real there's some moments where i'm like real clunker, okay. especially the first time you see nate as steel it's like whoa the mon the bebo bebo the dragon yeah um there's another one that there's some like, that are just kind of like hmm <laughs> well that's a choice you're doing your best so there's a lot working against legends of tomorrow but the strength of its writing which in turn becomes these really wonderful characters is what sells it to me um so like i said i was super both mary and i were super skeptical of the show um especially after watching the first season more mary than me because i didn't Mm -hmm. hate the first season um but like once you get into it you're into it 
there's no there's no coming back you're you get you're, a tattoo because you're yeah hooked for life yeah you're in there's there's nothing you can do um so the first thing i want to talk about with why this show works is fan service um because the show is very fan servicey, but not in the way that you would expect. Because yeah, we're not the biggest fans of fan service, exactly like, at so, all. So th- I think the r- the really important thing with the fan service in Legends of Tomorrow is that its concept of who a fan is is very different from most shows. So fan service as a term is often used to refer to story or just purely visual elements that exist in media for the purpose of satisfying fans. And this originates in anime and manga, um, although metatextual references, so references to other texts and like um, refer- like self-referential, self-referential things, uh, and also obviously sexual content existed far earlier than anime and manga. Um, but that's kind of where it got popularized. And fan service was typically used to refer to things like scantily clad women. So like, here's a unnecessary bikini babe uh, or like cool shots of robots or whatever. And they're just there. They're there to be like, hey, we know you're we know you like to look at sexy ladies and robots. So like, here's a sexy lady and a robot. And then you're like, yeah, I love this. Endgame. Endgame. It's to me, all fans. Oh, <laughs> yeah. So fan. <laughs> the concept is now pretty widespread with fan service occurring in all kinds of media in very different ways. There's lots of different kinds of fan service. Now, when we use the term, we don't just mean like a sexy lady or a robot. Um, so fan service as a concept can be pretty broad and there's obvious sexual content. For example, the scene in Star Trek Into Darkness where Carol Marcus changes clothes and we see her in her underwear for absolutely no reason whatsoever. She just strips in the middle of the scene. It's hot nonsense. Uh, and then there's also intertextuality that makes you feel smart and cool when you get it such as comic references in marvel films stuff like the x-force um reference in the final battle scene of uh endgame where all of the lady heroes come together that's fan service that's saying hey you know the x-force if you don't know the x-force look at all of our cool lady heroes i didn't know the x-force yeah it doesn't no clue yeah it doesn't I was just like little ladies it's the like the only time that they're giving them attention yep it's either it's it's a cool reference if you are a comics fan if you're not a comics fan then it's like look at all of our lady heroes and so either way you feel gratified by it um and then there's in jokes and references that we expect and feel rewarded when we see them such as stan lee cameos in marvel films like at this point like Stanley cameos are if you like they're a hallmark of Marvel films even in um uh Big Hero 6 even in Big oh, Hero yeah. 6 you have one and um now it's kind of a, like oh where's the cameo going to be we look for and we expect that that Stanley cameo and that is itself a form of fan service um so all of these things breed this sense of loyalty in us as viewers because we're not just getting this entertaining story right but we're also getting something that satisfies us on a deeper level whether it's because it makes us feel smart and cool for getting it or because we see a hot person and we go "Mm -hmm," like that hot person um so legends as a show is full of fan service but not just in like not in exactly the way that i listed above there is the "Mm, hot person um there's also intertextual references there's like things that we expect um all of that kind of stuff but it also seems to be uniquely interested in a specific type of fan which is the type of fan who is usually highly invested but underserved um and you're right i didn't think about it that way yeah so i'll get into this a little deeper specifically by this first there's a few different types of fans here but one of the most prominent i want to talk about is the concept of a fangirl and I don't just mean like <laughs> how I feel about that term. I don't just mean um, gender wise. I mean, fangirl behavior. 
Uh, I bring this up not because I want to start a weird debate about what a fangirl is, uh, but because Legends, unlike shows like Doctor Who or Supernatural, which are going to be my two biggest things I return to because this is the this show feels a lot like those two in a in a very strange way. Um, unlike Doctor Who and Supernatural, Legends seems to have a real affection for fangirl behavior. Um, Doctor Who's treatment of their fangirl character turned me off to the show to where I stopped watching it because I was so irritated. I mean, that's fair. I had I had like largely dropped off the show before then, but the treatment of that per- that particular character who like wears the I almost said Tom Brokaw. <laughs> you know, famed <laughs> Doctor <fangirl>. Tom Brokaw. <laughs> uh what is his name? It's not Tom Bombadil. It's not Tom Brokaw. <laughs> Tom Hiddleston. Tom Tom, the doctor, Tom. Tom, Tom. The, you know, the one with the long scarf? What's yeah. his name? Tom, man. <laughs> Whatever. Tom. That guy. Dr. Tom. Dr. Tom. <laughs> anyway, there's a character who wears who wears the scarf in the show. She's clearly representing a fangirl, and she gets, if I remember cor- correctly, just absolutely murdered. I gotta know. It's Tom Bombadil. <laughs> Tom. Tom Howard. Tom Hiddleston, Tom Brokaw, Baker, Baker, Tom Baker. Thank you. I mean you. Brokaw, Baker. Yeah, I was getting Bombadil. <laughs> Thanks for coming to our podcast. We're not canceled. <laughs> anyway, oh man. So there's like that character in Doctor Who, right? Who who clearly represents this idea of a fangirl. And at first, you see her in the show, and you're like, "Hey, that's me." And then they kill her. <laughs> And it's like, oh, is that how you think of me? Just like in the Darth Vader comic. Yeah, like that happens there too. It's very frustrating. Um, Supernatural is a little bit different. Um, so, but Supernatural was one of the earliest shows in my memory to really embrace the idea of fan fiction and fanon. So you had like they go to a su- they go to a Supernatural convention at one point. I don't remember if there's actual references to fan fiction, but like there certainly is references to like fan girls. And you have that whole meta episode where like they travel into the into like our world and like. Play their actors. Play their yeah. It's like Buck Wild, um, but that season. So season six is where I dropped Supernatural because that that I'm not gonna lie. That episode put me off because you got one season more than me. No, you watched that half of Did season I? six with me. Oh, yeah. okay. Um, I thought I stopped at five. I thought I stopped at five. Season, but you're right because that was in season six. Yeah, so we I watched had, and I've watched it. Yeah, we watched we watched like half of season six and then I gave up on it. I don't know if you continued after me. Um. But that episode in particular and some of the other references to like fandom in Supernatural felt pandery at best and condescending and dismissive at worst. I didn't feel loved or welcomed by those things. I felt like the show was making fun of me. I could enjoy both of those shows despite those things. And in fact, I did for a long time. But I always felt like they were in a way talking at or about me rather than to me. Uh, Legends is a bit different. Legends isn't doing either. They're talking with you. Exactly. <laughs> There's a big difference. So it's kind of a slim difference in terms of like, like it's still doing the fan service thing, right? But it matters because it feels as though Legends is writing is coming from a place of we get these jokes and that they matter to you, not because it's good marketing, but because I get the impression that the writer's room is itself in on the jokes. It's not just like they're out here reading fan fiction for research. They're out here reading fan fiction because it's what they like. 
They grew up reading it. A lot, I guarantee you, a lot of them did. And then they that in turn influences the writing that they do for the show, which makes it feel more like Legends of Tomorrow is saying, you like this stuff? I like this stuff too. Let's meet where we like this stuff. Which is very different from Supernatural or Doctor Who, which often feels like, I know you like this stuff, so I'm going to put it in the show. Which, like... Yes, they're both based in a in a in an attempt at audience connection and they could very well be both for the for the purposes of promotion and, and getting people invested. But there's a difference in I'm doing this because I know you are my audience too. I'm doing this because you and I both like the same stuff. Yeah. Um It's like having a conversation with a friend as opposed to having a conversation with like a coworker. Right. So this comes through in things like literally every single episode being some kind of Legends of Tomorrow AU. <laughs> it's amazing. 1920s AU, Old West AU, 1950s AU, Future AU. Like, And then we get into like, I'm surprised we didn't have a coffee shop. Right? <laughs> yet? There's another yet. season. I should say There's yet. another season. Someone's going to be a barista. Zari. And they're going to walk in. Oh, God. Zari would be the best barista. She would be the best barista. Oh, my God. We, we just cracked season five, you guys. Coffee <laughs> uh, shop AU. You, you also have frequent trope use. Ava and Sarah's romance is textbook enemies to lovers. It's good. Textbook enemies to lovers. Well, and I spotted it immediately. I saw their fight scene and I was like, oh. Oh, I remember. Yeah. You oh, they're going to hook up. They're gonna hook up, and I was right. And I thought I saw Ray and mm-hmm. and Nora, and I was like, "There's, there's mine." Yeah, I found it. Yeah, it's um, so good. I, it's so good. You have two different instances of fake dating, two of them, and they're both with Nate. <laughs> um, you also have um, the, you also have references to tropes themselves. So when they play the card game, and Sarah draws the card and is like, "Oh, you know, I love a good party sneak," and I'm like, "That's me." <laughs> Um, there's a lit- I want them to make that game. Yes, I need it. There is also literally an episode where Ava and Sarah turn into child versions of themselves. If that is not the most fanfic BS I've ever heard in my life, it's incredible. And they go to camp. And they go to su- it's summer camp AU. Like it's perfect. It's perfect in every way. Because these things are done lovingly rather than as methods to court viewers or, you know, it could be both. Like I'm not going to pretend as if the show is like a pure bastion of art and it has no interest in making money then you'd be wrong because it's true it's bastion of art (laughs) it can be both um but all of these things are played straight and for enjoyment i don't feel bothered by them the way i have in other shows because i don't feel like the show is trying to trick me into liking it i feel like the show is doing what the show wants to do and it just so happens that i like it it's flipping off everyone who doesn't yeah i feel like someone like there's like okay Season one, not so great. What do we do? Well, let's just, this is like, there had to have been like an aha moment of like, well, this is really just all AUs. So Why don't we just make the show we want? Make an AU for everything. Yeah. Um, and then there's that one writer who's like, what are you guys talking about? <laughs> um, a- another big point in the show's favor and the reason that a lot of this works is because it actually confirms these things. So instead of just dangling an enemies to lovers carrot, it's confirmed, multiple, like in multiple instances. During season three, a friend asked me, "Is it just me or is Gary into Constantine?" And then by season four, it's clear that not only is he definitely into Constantine, but they literally hooked up in some fashion at some point. But Gary was still a virgin. But Gary was still a virgin. We don't know what they did. We can imagine. Just take a moment, moment of silence for everybody to imagine. Gary that, went but- from one of my favorites to the. I mean, I still love him, but I want to punch him real bad. It's fair. 
it's and like they shot they like lampshade that in the show as well because they mentioned early on like earlier in the season it's some episode where she's like it's always the guy it's oh, always the doormat it's always the doormat it's always the doormat uh and then well it's also like really nice to like because when i heard gary i thought of jerry jerry don't worry that's i have a whole section about yeah, that okay, good um so instead of just like tossing references out there as this like wink nudge acknowledgement that fandom exists, these things are treated with the utmost seriousness in fandom in, and they become part of the show. Like it's not just like, hey, fan fiction, you've heard of that. It's like, here, let me throw fan fiction at you. Um, and it feels incredibly satisfying and it doesn't chase me away that like season six of Supernatural did where season si- season six of Supernatural leaned really hard into like embracing fandom and like representing fandom. But it did so in a way that didn't feel genuine to me. It felt like it was mocking me. Whereas Legends of Tomorrow is like, you're one of us. Come yeah, enjoy. I definitely. I think with Supernatural, it, it might have felt um, more like um, let's capitalize. And I this. think. And I think I don't want to be like too unfair to Supernatural here because it was one of the first shows I saw to do this. Um, so things were maybe a little bit riskier. And it may be different as Supernatural goes on. Yeah, certainly. I watched it. Yeah, certainly. I don't I don't want to be like the show is bad because it did this. And like same with Doctor Who, like Doctor Who has changed a lot, too. Mm-hmm. Um, but they didn't do it well the first time around. Exactly. And like that was the thing that turned me off because they were clearly like targeting me as a person who loves fandom and who like likes these shows they're they're like trying to get me as the audience right they're trying to increase my loyalty but by not respecting me they are instead driving me away so for me like this whole fandom thing it it, what and what makes me just really appreciate it is that fandom is so toxic Mm -hmm. it can be so toxic especially like for me i'm very i don't necessarily participate but i'm very involved in like lurking i guess of the star wars fandom that's because we grew up in the live journal days and we we have great respect for lurk more that's true i wish i still had my bracelet that said lurker Oh God, yeah. Anyways, so and like the star. If anyone's ever involved in the Star Wars fandom, you know it's like one of the most toxic places on the internet. It's so bad. I thought maybe most fandoms were like this, but I've seen multiple times someone like I'm in this X fandom, and I can't even imagine it being like this. This is so bad. So it's nice to have Legends of Tomorrow, in which I can lurk mm-hmm. in fandom, and it's not toxic. Right. It's like a way for me to get involved, but not have to see all the BS. Right. So that's what I appreciate about it. So the second other major group that it's targeting that is underserved is queer fans. And more and more shows are doing queer rep and doing it well. So I don't want to say that it's like unique in that aspect. But there is also something special about the way that Legends embraces queerness in a variety of ways that go beyond just surface level representation. So queer media, by which I mean media that goes beyond representation of literal visible queerness, which would be couples of the same gender, um, transgender characters, that kind of thing. That's all important. Don't get me wrong. But queer media, in my definition, goes beyond that literal visible representation into theoretical or figurative depictions of queerness. So like things that matter to queer people. Uh, I'll get into that a little bit more, is usually the domain of indie spaces rather than media for mass audiences. So you're more likely to find authentic queer, like queer media created by queer people in indie spaces. Um, But Legends actually plays with that a bit. To be clear, I don't mean things like Ray does not display traits of toxic masculinity and is therefore queer. That's not the kind of queer representation or the kind of queer media that I'm talking about here but rather that there are elements of the show that speak to a lived queer experience rather than just a representation of it. So like a show like, um, I'm trying to think of an example, like a show that just has like house. 
I haven't watched House. I know that Olivia Wilde's the OC, since that's what I'm watching right now. The OC has um, Marissa and Alex date one another, and they are bisexual. But like the show is not about a lived queer experience, right? It's about part of it's about Marissa getting back at her mother, and like there's all kinds of things to untangle there, right? That's very different than something like Legends of Tomorrow, where you have multiple queer characters whose queerness is like not just represented at as who they're sleeping with at that exact moment um and most of the time these references to like a queer lived experience are like intra-community jokes so things like the u-haul and subaru joke that that ava and um and uh sarah make to one i can't remember who makes it to ava makes it ava makes it which if you're not familiar with this i was not if you're not familiar with straight i'm not a lesbian but um it, there's like this common joke about lesbians moving really fast in their relationships and like immediately renting a U-Haul to move in with one another. And also just like, I guess a lot of lesbians drive Subarus. I'm not a lesbian, but that's what I've gleaned. Um, as our friend pointed out, also, Sarah says that she played Peter Pan in a play, which is a role that kind of embraces this idea of a playful butch character and it also like suits Sarah pretty well. Um, there's also just the, the, the fact that this show is very much a found family narrative, which is definitely not exclusive to queer narratives. Like it's not like only queer people can like found families, but it is a prevalent one. Um, primarily because a lot of queer people create their families rather than existing in their birth families, because even today there are plenty of people who aren't accepting of queer kids and many queer people missed out on the communal experience of being part of an accepting and welcoming peer group. So found families can be a substitute version of that for queer folks robbed of their childhood and support systems. And found family narratives are beloved by a lot of people naturally, but especially queer people, because a lot of us were robbed of that experience as children. Um, Even me, because I didn't come out when I was in high school because I had everybody telling me that bisexuality was fake and disgusting. So, you know, it's hard to come out when like my my friend group growing up made me feel that way. And so, of course, I wasn't going to tell them. And so through my entire high school experience, I wasn't open about it and so I wasn't really existing in my peer group the way that I could have been um and that's true of a lot of people in a lot of different a lot of different ways so like I said the found family narrative does not like only appeal to queer people but it often does appear to queer people who have been like rejected from their own groups or whatever we kind of cobble together our own family groups that have similar dynamics and similar feelings of unconditional acceptance and love and that's very much what what Legends of Tomorrow is, right? Like all of these people are not only cast off of the shows that they first appeared on, but like they're social groups. They just don't fit in anywhere else. Well, they're the most insignificant people in time. That's I also have a section all about that. Um, so they they all kind of cobble together their own little family, and they repeatedly refer to it as a family. Also. There's not just one single queer character on this show. There are multiple. You have They're Sarah. all gay. Everybody on this sh- there. Yeah. My favorite was, was it Charlie saying, like, um, Zari says, like, something like, blah, 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 straight girl. And Charlie looks at her and goes, straight? I don't remember that. It was great. Uh, anyway, there are multiple queer characters. You have Sarah. You have Constantine. You have Gary. You have Ava. You have Des. You have all of the one-off side characters that people sleep with. And they're all distinctly different from one another. There is a lot of bisexuality, which is itself pretty unusual. Um, And none of those characters act even remotely the same. Like they don't act like like Sarah and Constantine don't act like one another. Gary certainly doesn't act like (laughs) either of them. Ava and Des are both. To my knowledge, Ava is a lesbian and Des is gay. But that's just because I don't see them with anybody else. I don't know. Whatever. 
Um, but none of them act exactly the same as the other. And no one character has to carry the burden of representation because there are multiple. And they're all allowed to be wonderful, flawed people who exist inside and outside of their orientation, which is important because it means that their identity is not the only thing about them. But it also isn't not important to them. Like all people, it's a mixture of both. There's a lot of when people talk about representation, there's a lot of, well, I don't understand why they have to just like make their entire character about their bisexuality or whatever. And like, I understand that to a degree because it is really frustrating when you see yourself represented, but your only representation is, hello, I'm bisexual. Did you know I'm bisexual? Hi, I'm bisexual. Hi, I'm the bisexual character. Hello. Hello. Did you know I like people of different genders and also the same gender? And then you also have the opposite where you have, oh, this character is bisexual, but we're never going to talk about it or mention it or um, acknowledge it whatsoever because that would be difficult and we don't know how. So we're just going to pretend it didn't happen. Both of those have flawed approaches and this show doesn't do that. Even just the premise of like a bunch of superhero cast offs ignored by the mainstream is itself a little queer, in my opinion. This is definitely more of a figurative reading than a literal reading. Um, more in the sense of like you go on doing your whole dark and gritty mass appeal thing and I'll be over here being weird and genuine that in a way that may not appeal to everybody we'll but certainly appeals to some unicorns yeah so when I say that this appeals to queer fans I don't just mean with representation I mean also in the way it handles its characters in the jokes that it makes that feel like intercommunity or intercommunity jokes rather than like jokes made um for the consumption of straight audiences like that, like the U-Haul thing is going to fly right under the radar for a lot of that people. Would have, I would have not even thought twice about that. If- yeah. Like stuff like that is going to fly under the radar for a lot of people. So there's like, th- there's jokes that, that aren't intended for mass consumption. And there's also like these, ele- these plot elements and these story elements that speak to a lived queer experience rather than just represent like here is a gay character. I think it's Enjoy. also important that they don't explain the jokes. Yes, <laughs> they don't explain them. They don't have to look into the ad and say, "Okay, guys, now here's here's what this means." <laughs> they just kind of let the joke go, on and that's fine because it's not important to the storyline. Right. Um, the other major third thing about the fan service in this show is that it has a disinterest in courting mass audiences. So, Legends of Tomorrow doesn't fit in with the other Arrowverse shows tonally. It like they have crossover episodes and that kind of thing. Uh I don't I don't watch any of them. I feel like Supergirl is maybe the one that feels the lightest and maybe therefore the closest in tone, but I have I have watched Supergirl, I've watched Arrow and I've watched Flash and I would say that's true. I'd say in my experience I have not watched every season of all of them. In my opinion, um Arrow is dark, Flash is middle, then we have Supergirl and then there's Legends of Tomorrow. Is there another one? Those are the ones I know. Yeah, I think that's it. Um but oh, so yeah. I feel like Supergirl is probably the closest match, but then there's also Doom Patrol, but I don't know if they're actually in the same universe. I feel like... I don't think so. Doom Patrol, because it's also DC. I don't know how this It's just works. different. It, yeah, whatever. It may not, it's DC TV, but not Arrowverse. Whatever. Doom Patrol has this kind of similar wild out there gang of misfits. Queerness is tolerated and appreciated, um, that kind of thing. But it is much darker in tone than Legends of Tomorrow, but it still manages to be extremely funny and and good. Like I, I need to watch the rest of Doom Patrol um, because I love the comics a lot. Um, the first season of Legends of Tomorrow felt very much like it was trying to be an Arrowverse show. Like it was like, uh, we are in the Arrowverse and we must act like the Arrowverse. It was so dark, like, like literally. literally dark. Uh, and that trying to be the Arrowverse show, which is 
you know, the kind of like mass appeal, here's what people want, that kind of thing, held it back from the wonderful weirdness that it really is. And when it stopped trying to be an Arrowverse show in the sense of like, we are like the other Arrowverse shows, that's when it got much better. I think that there are many reasons why it tried to be like, Arrow and that Arrow is probably the most successful, but also like Sarah, I feel like was their big ticket item, mm-hmm. and they were felt like they were gonna get because Sarah was heavily in Arrow at least when I was watching it, and um, and I don't know how much the other characters in it, but I think that she's probably the most popular out of all of them. Um, so she was the big ticket item, and they thought they were probably gonna get a lot of people from Arrow. So I took a screenshot, a couple of screenshots from the the finale of season four, which is when uh Sarah, Nate, and someone else i can't remember was it gary gary's the flash right sarah nate and gary are sarah's dressed as supergirl nate's dressed as arrow and um gary is dressed as the flash and they're trying to get people to come to this theme park right and sarah says people need franchise superheroes to feel safe so that's how we're gonna get them in the door and i'm like oh that's that's the show (laughs) that's that's the show (laughs) um and i think sarah was that that franchise that person that they could identify yeah She's that person that they could identify to get them into this show. Um, so another thing about Legends of Tomorrow is that it's very and like it's disinterest in, in courting mass audiences is the fact that it's very polit- political, even when it's not literally referencing modern politics. You have references to Trump and like offhanded ones like things about the, there was something about a wig. Um, there, there's something about like the literal the election, like right. going to the 2016 or something. Yeah. Like, uh, yeah, you have the writers' rooms Twitter posting about Trump sexually assaulting people. Like those are that happens. Like they did that. Um, you have characters on screen advocating for punching Nazis, like multiple times, multiple times. And like the thing is that unfortunately has become a thing that we debate. In how is this our world? I don't know. But like you, you straight up have characters on the show being like, "I love to punch Nazis. Anytime you need a mo- Nazi punch, call me up." And it's like. That matters in 2019 or 2017 when it was airing, whatever. And that was around when we had that that whole debate. With, with Richard Spencer. Yeah. I, I think it was a direct reference to Yeah, that. it had to be. Um, the show, by, by virtue of doing those things and by being literally political by posting stuff like uh, it was like a... It was like a plaque. a plaque. It was a plaque that said like on this spot in whatever year uh, Trump sexually boasted about sexually assaulting a woman. And like they posted that on their official Twitter um, that's naturally going to drive away parts of their audience. But they don't want them. But they keep doing it. And the show is certainly an escape from reality in a lot of senses, but it also refuses to discount reality and it routinely checks in with its audience to remind them that there are real issues in the world too. So put this a, is such a good show. <laughs> yeah. Put a bookmark in that thought because we're going to return to it later. Uh, I just wanted to bring it up here because because the show is definitely, it needs a mass audience, right? Like in order to be successful. But at the same time, it's just wholly not interested in large groups of people watching superhero shows. Um, And this means that the show isn't for everybody and it isn't interested in being for everybody. It's a show for a select audience that likes queer characters, that likes superheroes, that likes time travel, adventure stories, found families, and dislikes Nazi and Trump. And in an era when Wolfenstein, the game, Wolfenstein, the game in which you only fight Nazis as a Jewish hero, in an era when Wolfenstein's publisher says the game is apolitical, the fact that the show does that sticks out. Because there's such an interest in mainstream media of being, you know, quote unquote, apolitical. But like this show is like, nah, we're going for it. We're doing it. We're political. And they only like lean in. Yes. And it makes it clear who the show is for. There's very little both sides BS. I feel like the um, the writers team is like 
if I were to if I were to like create them in a very small gif, it would be a van with all of them hanging out, going wee and just turning, <laughs> and then like hitting a Nazi. <laughs> um. So one question with this show that I think probably a lot of us have wondered who have watched it: Why is this show allowed to be so gleefully queer when so many others aren't? Probably because it's their lowest stake. Probably. For one, it's a B-sides show with a bunch of B-list characters or C-list or D-list. Uh, and while DC movies certainly have a reputation for being grimdark and not exactly progressive, there are some exceptions like the casting of Jason Momoa for for Aquaman. There's been some other like things like that. The shows veer off from that a bit. And to be absolutely fair, there is more diversity in the TV sphere of superhero media than in the movie sphere. So like you in Jessica Jones, you have... Um, the lawyer and her wife. Yeah. Would, and that ends super well. Um, I don't know. I don't watch most of the shows, but that's the one that came to mind. Uh, but rarely do even the most progressive superhero shows venture into this degree of just bizarreness. I mean, like you have a man's nipple serving as a hum- hypnotic device from hell. Um, I've not seen and then that. Later, just a third nipple. And then just a third nipple. There's just a lot happening with the nipple. <laughs> um, so just the way you said that there's just a lot happening with the nipple there is the degree of nipple in this in season four made me a little uncomfortable (laughs) i was a little uncomfortable with the amount of nipple i was like i don't want to think about gary's nipple how many times can we say nipple nipple Nipple. it's a really fun word to say like i think nipples nipples a really good word supple nipple oh wow it does sound nice and all the things that sound good with nipple like just make it like (laughs) worse like succulent supple nickel nickel (laughs) i love a supple nickel um i just like being a succulent nipple succulent nipple a nipple made of succulents oh uncomfortable um so i have a question to ask to raise here as we're talking about weird queer stuff is this camp so let's talk about camp (laughs) so before we get deep into it i want to differentiate between kitsch and camp because we use we'll throw around the word campy a lot or the word kitschy a lot but they actually have specific meanings when you're talking like analytically so kitsch refers to a work camp refers to an act or performance legends of tomorrow is kitschy and campy it is kitsch because of what it is it is camp because of how it's performed and created and this is all a bit who cares to me but for the sake of accuracy, we've mentioned it. Now you know what quit kitchen camp are. It's Kashamp. Kashamp. So the first thing I want to... Here's my first source for today. It's a quote from Christopher Isherwood's The World in the Evening, where Isherwood writes, You can't camp about something you don't take seriously. You're not making fun of it. You're making fun out of it. You're expressing what's basically serious to you in terms of fun and artifice and elegance. So this is Legends. This is just Legends of Tomorrow. It is a non-serious show that is nonetheless deeply serious about what it does. By taking the issues it represents seriously, such as things like othering, like queerness, like found families, and representing them in a frequently bizarre and ostentatious fashion, it manages to represent those things without venturing into preachy territory. Like, there's a lot of things in the show that could just be preachy very easily, especially all of season four, could just feel extremely preachy. And sometimes it fails just by virtue of what it's trying to do. Um... But in my opinion, more often than not, it knocks it out of the park because it takes serious issues and emotions and treats them with frivolity and with fun. Out of the magical park. Out of the magical theme park. 
Um, so let's get into Notes on Camp by Susan Sontag. Let's. So Notes on Camp is kind of like the definitive here's what camp is text. Susan Sontag sounds really familiar. She's a very famous critic. Okay. Um, I had to read her for a very depressing class I took on representations of genocide in film. Why did I take that class? I don't know. Uh, so this is the first thing I want to read from Notes on Camp. Notes on Camp is, is quite short. Um, it got a lot of, uh, so the, the theme of the Met Gala this year was camp notes on fashion. So everybody was supposed to dress campy. And naturally, that it never it never works. The Met Gala never works out as intended. Some No one understands. Some artists le- like Lady Gaga by like Lady Gaga's entire na- like nature and her her identity as a as a performer is camp. Like yeah. so Lady Gaga, yeah, absolutely. Rihanna it. usually gets it. Rihanna usually gets it. There like there are some people who usually get it, but then and there then are people like, who are Kim Kardashian. You just look wet. I liked hers though. She's just she's she did look, look she did look wet, but it looked great. Like it was like it was like cool how she's kind of like one of those things that you can't hold. Yeah. <laughs> um. So this is a quote from Notes on Camp. You've probably heard about it recently because of the Met Gala theme. It is actually a pretty approachable piece of like criticism. So like if you want to learn more about camp, it's not a really hard one to read. Um. So here's a quote from that. It's this is a beefy one, so that we can really get into it. But there are other creative sensibilities besides the seriousness. <laughs> I love that you kept the butt in there. But there are other creative sensibilities besides the seriousness, both tragic and comic, of high culture and the high style of evaluating people. And one cheats oneself as a human being if one has respect only for the style of high culture, whatever else one may do or feel on the sly. For instance, there is the kind of seriousness whose trademark is anguish, cruelty, derangement. Here we do accept a disparity between intention and result. I am speaking, obviously, of a style of personal existence as well as a style as well as of a style in art. But the examples had best come from art. Art whose goal is not that of creating harmonies, but of overstraining the medium and introducing more and more violent and unresolvable subject matter. This sensibility also insists on the principle that an oeuvre in the old sense, again in art but also in life, is not possible. Only fragments are possible. Clearly, different standards apply here than to traditional high culture. Something is good not because it is achieved, but because another kind of truth about the human situation, another experience of what it is to be human, in short, another valid sensibility is being revealed. And third among the great creative sensibilities is camp, the sensibility of failed seriousness or of the theatricalization of experience. Camp refuses both the harmonies of traditional seriousness and the risks of fully identifying with extreme states of feeling. So that was a whole lot. But essentially what, what Sontag is doing is, is identifying these different ways of understanding art. There is serious art. There, there is the serious art that is is about, um, you know, increasing a sense of realism and, and this kind of thing. And then there's camp, which is in, in a very, very, very short way of saying failed seriousness. Um, we know as people that the whole world has irony poisoning and being genuinely emotional or forthcoming aren't cool. Uh, by ingra- embracing camp and ridiculousness, Legends of Tomorrow is able to be a superhero show, which is itself a silly concept, a much beloved concept, but silly. Uh, it's able to embrace that and is not grim dark, which is an approach that many superhero stories, not just shows, but superhero stories in general, and I'll get more into that later, have taken to orient themselves as adult and artistic rather than just like, you know, quote unquote, for kids. Uh, and it's still about serious issues. Like it manages to do all of those things because it is campy and ridiculous. So 
the season four finale in particular is both intensely serious. Like it's it's about how we create monsters out of things we don't understand and how that tears the world apart and all of those kinds of things, right? And it's also intensely silly. They save the world with a theme park and they sing somebody back to life. Ray Palmer, possessed by Neuron, says he's going to make America hell again. It's so good. Like it's ridiculous, but it's also so earnest about As what I it's cried doing. and bawled at the end right the silliness by virtue of how the show works tonally doesn't turn the purposeful references to real world politics into youth- useless or toothless critiques of modern society because the show is silly in tone but because it takes itself seriously enough that it can pl- like it's hard to it's hard to articulate but the show is silly but it takes silliness silliness seriously i think it takes its issue seriously in right. the silliness world and that's how it should be. Right. I do, like, personally, I felt that the finale leaned a little too hard into real world references because by virtue of being a somewhat silly show, that does transform the reference to Make America Great Again into something that's less threatening than actual reality. Because we're not actually worried about hell here. Because we live it. Right. Um, but at the same time, and, like, and, and I also take issues with the monsters equals oppressed people metaphor because... It doesn't really ever work because oppressed people are not actually huge threats. Um, and also, why was Mike like Mike the Spike was a serial killer? That's very different. <laughs> why did he was he part of that group? But whatever. Um, but at least Legends of Tomorrow doesn't make only fictional creatures the target of its oppression. Zari is Muslim and makes a point of referencing how Muslim people were also targeted in this crusade of fear. Like the show doesn't just say that doesn't just push all of the oppression onto monsters and say that's oppressed people they say those are oppressed people so is zari so and her family who's muslim it's just like ripped my heart out when she's like they're looking at her mom and she's like who could find her Mm -hmm. threatening like who could find her dangerous yeah and it's very it's very purposeful in that and that's why ultimately even though like there were parts of it that went a little too hard in the finale for me ultimately i still came away with positive feelings for it because they didn't rest everything on that um So I have another quote I want to read uh, from Notes on Camp. The whole point of camp is to dethrone the serious. Camp is playful, anti-serious. More precisely, camp involves a new, more complex relation to, quote unquote, the serious. One can be serious about the frivolous, frivolous about the serious. So this, again, just defines Legends of Tomorrow for me. Legends takes its frivolity seriously. You have people returning to life because of the power of love. You have a giant Bebo fighting malice. You have repeated references to ratings throughout season four. But all of those things are taken. Lack of crossover. And the lack of crossover. Um, But all of those things are taken seriously within the text. They don't exist so that the show can point a finger at its own silliness and sell itself on that basis. Like the show isn't going like, I'm a silly show. Watch me because I'm silly. Those are part of the show's tone. One thing about legend. Like one thing that Legends of Tomorrow is not is like LOL so random, despite oh appearances. Pandas. Yeah. It's actually quite tightly plotted if you set aside time travel BS, and we're always setting a ti- aside time travel BS. Don't think about it. Just don't think about it. Uh things are hinted at far in advance. They're tweeted treated. They're treated. They might be tweeted. They might be tweeted. They're treated with their own unique vari- variation of gravitas, and they are within the bounds of the universe. And like again, of course, the bounds of the universe are always being pushed at. So things that happen in later seasons may not have been permissible early on, but even that, like pushing of the boundary, is acceptable within Legends of Tomorrow, considering that each consecutive season 
season is a further unraveling of time. So like they're constantly pushing out their own boundaries, but that's because like, well, they make it work with Zari. Right. They make it when she's like, you guys are stupid. Like, let's actually save some people. Yeah. I, I appreciated that. Mm hmm. But it gives them that opportunity to push the boundaries and right. still have it make sense. Yeah. And it, the, the thing that really matters to me about this is that like that idea of taking frivolity seriously is important. And that's why the show works, because the show isn't out here being silly for the sake of being silly. It's out here being silly because that's the kind of tone that works with the story that they're trying to tell. If they tried to make this a serious show, it'd suck. Uh, well, season one. Yeah. Like I'm trying to like imagine treating season four with the utmost seriousness. It would have to be. Imagine having Something a character else. straight faced and this just being their character saying make America hell again. I would turn off the TV so fast. Um, I mean, I think it could be done, but it would have to be very good. Yeah, you'd have to have some really good writing. Uh, another quote from Susan Sontag. Uh, Camp taste is a kind of love, love for human nature. It relishes rather than judges the little triumphs and awkward intensities of character. Camp taste identifies with what is it, what it is enjoying. People who share this sensibility are not laughing at the thing they label as a camp. They're enjoying it. Camp is a tender feeling. And this is really important too. To call legends campy is in one sense to say that it is bad, but it's also to embrace that its awkwardness makes it good. So relishing awkward intensities, which is how Sontag puts it, is definitely how I feel about that sh about the show. I love that it embraces fan fiction and that it embraces tropes and things like life-changing musical numbers, even if the intensity of these moments, because they are genuine and heartfelt, sometimes make me a little uncomfortable. Like there's there's times where I'm like, oh, you're just a little, you're a little too much. But it's that too much that I love about it. The fact that it goes beyond what is like acceptable in the boundaries of TV, it pushes beyond that. And I go, this is good. It makes me uncomfortable, but this is good because it makes me uncomfortable. And I love the show for its for its awkwardness because sometimes it is just so awkward. It's true. And while I might preface my recommendation with things like, you know, it uh, sometimes gets weird is probably how I would explain it to somebody. How do you feel about murderous um, unicorns? How do you feel about puppets? How hate puppets. I do hate puppets. How do you feel about... Um, What's one? I don't know. I don't even know. Uh, it's precisely that weirdness that I love about it. That's what I like about it is the fact that it is like that. And like, obviously, also, I really just love that there's a show that finally gets John Constantine right. But that's beside the point. And to be honest, you're all lucky this entire outline isn't about how much I love John Constantine. So you're welcome. I'll start a John Constantine podcast. Watch me. I don't have time for that. There's also been a long association between queerness and camp, particularly in the UK, where camp was often used for a particularly like effeminate ex expression for gay men. Um, Sontag also brings this up in Notes on Camp, where she writes, the peculiar relation between camp taste and homosexuality has to be explained. While it's not true that camp taste is homosexual taste, there is no doubt a peculiar affinity and overlap. Not all liberals are Jews, but Jews have shown a particular affinity for liberal and reformist causes. So not all homosexuals have camp taste, but homosexuals, by and large, constitute the vanguard and the most articulate audience of camp. And she goes into this a little bit deeper, but she mentions essentially that this that as creative minorities, queer folks have a closer connection with camp than more dominant identities. Um, and this is there's a lot of this hap that happens with marginalized communities and in art forms. Like a lot of times one dominant method is is like something like camp runs runs counter to to dominant media. Right. So a campy piece of media runs 
runs counter to the expectations of um of mass audiences and the same is true of like queer people or any mar- or any marginalized group it just kind of runs alongside of it or veers off in a different direction i can't think of camp without just thinking of like horror movies is that accurate <laughs> Um, I think horror movies can be camp. There's nothing. It, camp is kind of hard to describe, like to plainly articulate. Um, it's not purely so bad it's good, but that's kind of how people use it. Well, there's like Evil Dead. Yeah, I think that Evil Dead is campy. Okay, that's what I, that's more like what I'm thinking. Of, oh, like okay. Dead Alive. Um, yeah, I would say Drag Me are, to Hell. I would say those are campy. The you know the horror movies I like. Yeah. <laughs> or like maybe I think it's Friday the Thirteenth where what's his name goes to like space oh i don't know yeah that's weird <laughs> it's it, the thing is that it, camp is not just so bad it's good it has to have that element of like an appreciation for the thing that it is it, it's it's serious about its frivolity it's frivolous about its seriousness it makes me think of like e.e cummings and the way that he writes <laughs> yeah and how like it doesn't make sense but he has to have a complete knowledge of like right way grammar works to break these rules yeah and like good satire and good parody yeah. will often come from a place of love rather than a place of like hatred um it takes practice to do correctly and especially like camp is something that you generally don't do intentionally like you don't like i don't think the legend the legends of tomorrow writers are sitting around going okay how are we going to camp it up this week um tent or camp yep hit it Hit it is what you do when you're camping. Hit it. I've been camping in a really There's long like time. A camping song. <laughs> um, this is the camp bands. <laughs> so why does it matter if it's camp? The purpose of this section isn't purely to teach you about camp, although I certainly found it interesting. Nor is it purely to explain why Legends of Tomorrow is good, um, though I think both of those things play a role. I think that understanding what camp is and where it comes from and how it differs from differs from other kinds of media can change the way we think about things like legends a little bit and help us understand why it feels warm and welcoming toward its fans, whereas something like Doctor Who or Supernatural Season 6 can feel antagonistic. Uh, because camp comes from a place of love and understanding, like a lot of good satire, it's able to pull off its weird plot beats and its overly earnest sentiment and all of that kind of stuff. If it came from a cynical place, it wouldn't land, Right. The show would no longer be for me. It would be for somebody else, like sometimes at my expense. And of course, it still could function perfectly well and appeal to a lot of people if it wasn't campy. It wouldn't work for me, but it could still work. And like as Susan Sontag points out in Notes on Camp, even if queer people hadn't essentially invented and popularized camp, somebody would have gotten there eventually. Um, But as it in our world, as it happened, it was largely populated and created by queer people. But the thing is that a less campy legends wouldn't be legends. Like, it would be an entirely different show. So even when it stumbles, which it does, it's not perfect. It's not doing it from a place of malice or because it doesn't really get what it's doing. Like, it always is perfectly aware of what it's doing. And sometimes representation in in media fails because it's somebody trying to do the right thing, but not knowing why they're trying to do the right thing. Uh, or because it's somebody trying to capitalize on diversity as a selling point. Like, oh, we have to put a queer character in here. Otherwise, audiences are going to be upset. Um, That isn't the case with Legends at all, which is clearly made by people who have an understanding and respect for the different kinds of people that they're trying to portray. That said, please stop using spirit animal. The jokes aren't funny, and there are a lot of substitutes you can throw in there. I have a feeling that spirit animal and, like, tribe and stuff like that has not made it to like mass media of these are not good yeah. things to use yeah because i can i will die if i hear bride tribe one more time good grief let's talk about weirdness 
I mean, this whole episode is about weirdness, right? But yeah. like, let's really talk about let's it. Dig deep. Um, I have a video that I'm going to link to in the show notes, um, which is really good. It's about the weirdness of the show. And I actually watched it before finishing the show. I started watching it. I watched the video in, when I was in season two and I saw like the Bebo Malice fight. And I was like, what? <laughs> what? Where is this show going? What happens between where I am and where that occurs? To be fair, you could say the same thing as it's happening. It's yeah, you can. <laughs> it, but it makes like the logically in the show, it still makes sense. Yeah. Especially like and it like that kind of thing is hinted at too. Like remember in the uh I can't remember why Nate is like not I think it might have been after he does the vision thing with Amaya and he says something like, Oh, we have to use the Care Bear stare, and then they literally do a Care Bear thing to defeat Malice. Like this kind of stuff is laid out in advance. It's not like it doesn't come out of nowhere. There are hints that it's coming. I think it's important to have that plan to execute these things. I think that there's some people who write as they go and I don't think I don't, I I think it'd be really hard to write this as like as you go. Yeah, I imagine a season a season long show like this where it has a season long plot, they have to have some plot beat set up in advance. Yeah. Um so the let's talk about weirdness. The the premise of superheroes is just inherently a little weird. There's enough cultural sat- saturation in in like our world that we no longer think of superheroes as weird, especially now that they're extremely commercially successful. Now you're saying now you're like, oh, I love superheroes. Then like your grandma's going to be like, oh, yeah, superheroes. Whereas, you know, 20 years ago, your grandma might have been like, but you're an adult. You know, that's not true anymore. Um, but the concept of people with magic or science. But let's be real. It's mostly just magic. Uh, the concept of people with magic is powers. Science just not another ma- form of magic. That's is that Arthur C. Clarke? So, I don't know. I Sufficiently don't know. advanced science is indistinguishable from magic, or something like that. Whatever, whatever. Uh, so P- the concept of people with magic powers is just kind of odd. I like it. Don't get me wrong. I'm a fantasy fan. Give me a good witch. But it's inherently a little bit weird. Uh, after decades, so let's get into like comic history a little bit because I actually think that's super relevant. After decades of not really being taken seriously as a conceit or as a medium, if we just include the idea of comics, because many comics, what's, what's a conceit? It's like a concept. Oh, okay, essentially, uh, like the idea of superheroes, people with powers, etc., were not really being taken seriously, especially because they were primarily in comics, where, um, which were primarily like seen as kids stuff, right? Um. So they, you know, they were not taken seriously for decades. And then after some of the censorship in the comics industry ended with like the dissolution of the comics code, we started seeing more kinds of superheroes arise. So these stories were generally more serious and and darker than previous generations. So you transition from something like the camp, like the Batman show, like the 1968 Batman show is pure camp. That's camp. Uh, that moves into the more serious literary-minded work of things like Alan Moore's comics and many other 80s and 90s superhero comics that took this kind of darker darker bent. So, you know, Alan Moore, everything Vertigo, uh, and then you have, like, the Dark Knight comic and all that kind of stuff. Um, which is not to say that the serious stuff replaced camp or that more lighthearted superhero stories uh, like that those went away or that superhero stories were never serious before the 80s because none of that is true like there were there's always been like things that are serious or things that are lighthearted, and none replaced anything um but trend wise the loosening of the comics code um combined with the political climate of the 80s and then the desire among some creators to be taken more seriously and with a more like literary feel 
um, by kind of exploring different kinds of superhero stories all contributed to this more serious and darker take on the idea of superpowered people. Like Watchmen is probably the best example. Um, and this isn't unique to comics or to superhero stories. We see it happen in most media, um, games, movies, books. Obviously, like books have been around for a really long time. So like you have to look a ways back for that. Uh, <laughs> movies too. Like You didn't go all the way back? You no. You have the time? <laughs> the, the origin of books. Um, but comics and games are two media that are pretty like pretty modern and you can kind of see those things happen. Uh, this kind of like shift from for kids fun to serious dark art. Um, it, like any kind of media will get a reputation as being unserious or for kids. And then creators of that thing who do take it seriously take a new approach to make it clear that the thing can be more than for kids or unserious. And I think we can trace a similar thing in comic book adaptations as well. So there have been a lot of them. And the line isn't as linear, obviously. But you do have things like the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man series being, you know, one, not the earliest, but one of the earlier comic, ad- like mainstream like comic popular. adaptation. It was, yeah, and very, very popular. And it's very, very silly. Like, I love it dearly, especially Spider-Man 2. Eternal, eternal fave. Um but like it is very very silly at times and then we have this gradual shift into nolan's batman films which are intensely serious and despite the inherent silliness of that concept like it is so it's like no batman is real and he's here and he's gonna kill you full disclosure i love those movies i don't like them at all but now we have the joker movie which is like good grief that on, i won't i can't I can't watch that. No. It is like depresses me watching the trailer. I cannot do it. No, thank you. Um, you also see this in TV with not only the Arrowverse, but like the Marvel series, particularly Jessica Jones, which to be fair is the only one I've actually watched. Uh, I've watched most of them. They're very dark and very serious, despite the fact that the concept itself is kind of inherent. She punched real hard. You see. <laughs> Man cannot be um, hurt. Yeah. She punch real hard. Well, same he with go, Iron Fist. Punch real hard. He go real fast. You see. <laughs> Sometimes he goes so fast, he goes different places in time. That's silly. Like, right? That's just a silly concept. Of course, I love it. Don't get me wrong. I love it. But it is, it's inherently silly. So to kind of counterbalance that silly, like, no, it's not just for kids. It's serious. We lean into this, like, intense like dark upsetting world it's super frustrating for me because this is that's obviously become a trend but i and i like that stuff but i still love the stuff that is quote unquote for kids and then i'm told by the people who like those things that oh you're some, watching something for kids but like you watch the serious version and like like wh- what is what is the difference here right like, yeah, what superheroes are something that can explore all kinds of different they can be used to explore very serious stories they can be used to explore not very serious stories and they can be used in different ways. Like 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 we've said, Legends of Tomorrow explores really serious stuff. Um, but it does so in a way that isn't preachy and that isn't like, hey, you know the world? It sucks. Remember that? Remember how the world sucks? I mean, it does. All right, bye. Because <laughs> that's, how, that's how a lot of these shows feel to me is like, hey, stuff sucks. And then we just nod at each other, right? Yeah, it does suck. All right, next episode. That's like That's like how a lot of it feels to me. Um, but things don't have to be extremely dark in order to show what a particular 
story beat or an element like superheroes is capable of. And I think that's something that Legends does really well. As we mentioned, it deals with really serious issues, particularly in season four, where they're just running around trying to round up a bunch of magical creatures and get turned into puppets or cats or um, a, a man's nipple hypnotizes people or... I always go back to that unicorn. The unicorn. Like, all of that happens, but it's still, like, very serious about what it's doing. Um, Because the show is, like, those elements are also about xenophobia and about how fear can turn even good people into villains. When people think they're doing the right thing, they're doing a wrong thing in multiple senses. So you have the way that Legends treats magical creatures up until they meet Charlie, right? So Charlie appears in season four. I Okay, I, we haven't mentioned this at all, and this is a total side note, but I love the fact that Amaya leaves, but Amaya's actor is still there. I know. It cracks me and up. She's so different. She's so different. It's like applause to the actress because yeah. I can't imagine. It doesn't even look like her to me anymore. I know. It's crazy. It's like, it's so well done, but I just, I just love that. Just love the fact that like she's still there, but the character has gone. Anyway. They really liked it. They wanted to keep yeah. working with her. So... In season four, you have Charlie, who is a character who's like, she's a shapeshifter. She's um like this 70s, I think, or 80s punk rocker. I think it's like late 70s. Yeah. Um, And she's a shapeshifter. And Ray is the one who goes and meets her in London. And she's like, you know, we're not all like monsters, right? Like you don't really have to be afraid of us. You're just afraid of us because you don't know what we are. And he's like, huh, you know what? You're right. And then they get to know her and that's the point where they shift. So <laughs> so there's that. And then there's also the fact that like when you remove Charlie from the equation, as they do in a later episode, you see the path that the that the legends go down and it's an extremely dark one. Like they become ruthless killers. Sure was fun to watch though. It sure was fun to watch. Especially the Charlie's Angel. God, the Charlie's Angel one was so good. I also loved custodi- Custodians of the Chronology. Oh, I know. Was, that one very, killed me. It was very good. Especially because evil Nate can get it. I mean, Nate can get it. Nate can get it, but evil Nate can get it. That's I don't true. know what they did different in styling him, but I'm like, oh, evil Nate can get it. Yeah. Um. So you have the way that the legends treat magical creatures until they meet Charlie and until Ray stands up for her, but also the way that they treat Gary. And how that shapes his his behavior toward them. Like, to be fair, Gary is kind of a creep. Like, he's like a low-key creep. Like, you'd find him in your closet, but, like, not be, like, I, <laughs> no, the, you know what but I mean? he got locked in there. But he got locked in there, and it's not creepy. I mean, literally, I guess that happens. He gets locked in <laughs> But that's how I see him. Like he's he's, like, the kind of creepy where, like, why are you in my closet? Oh, I got locked in here. Yeah. Like he's not he's not an evil character. He's not a nefarious character. He's a very, very awkward. Well. Okay, but um, but he is like he is he's a little bit creepy and very awkward. Um, but the show does play with the way that a lot of comedies have this character who it's okay to dunk on, even in a lighthearted show where people are generally kind to one another. Looking at you, Parks and Rec in Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Even if Brooklyn Nine-Nine in particular has gone full in on making Hitchcock and Scully just like supremely awful. Gary is kind of a creep, but the way he's treated is actually critiqued within the show on a level that goes beyond that episode where Jerry had a heart attack on Parks and Recreation and we all felt bad for him for one single episode and then went back to dunking on him the next day. Um, They fixed that because we gave him a hot wife. (laughs) And a hot daughter. And And that itself is not trying to dunk on him, right? That's true. Like, oh my God, Jerry? How does Jerry have a hot wife? That's it. That's the joke. Um, 
so like in the in the the last few episodes like we mentioned earlier you have the whole like it's always the doormat thing right but the show leads you to believe that like like it's okay to dunk on jerry or gary <laughs> the show Do you think that was purposeful probably okay um, especially because I can't remember who one of the characters calls him Jerry at one point and he goes, it's yeah, Gary. yeah, yeah. Um, the show makes a point of saying like, actually the way the legends treated him was awful, especially because it, it's revealed. He just wanted a friend. He didn't have any friends. He was the worst evil person of all time. He was. And his, his main like thing you wanted to do was to get everyone to like him. Uh huh. Relatable. Um, and I think I think that's actually done really effectively. Like, yes, Gary is a little bit of a creep at times, um, especially with the way he talks about Ava. <laughs> he just really has thoughts for Ava. Um, but at the same time, like the show, it not only does it not go like Jerry deserves all of the treatment, but it also doesn't go like Jerry's actually flawless um, because like the punishments that he puts them through with the fairy godmother and that kind of thing are still really humiliating. Mm-hmm. And, and like, like he could have killed Ava and yeah and Sarah yeah, but the show also doesn't let the legend slide on that. It's like no, you guys were real jerks and you didn't have to be like that. You didn't have to treat him like that. You could have been nice and you weren't. Um, because there really is no reason to be cruel to Gary. He's like like I said, kind of a creep, really awkward, bumbling, but like they don't have to be cruel to him, and they were. And the show is not gonna let them off the hook for that and it's also the show i mean is also very much about ripple effects and personal power ripple of the nipple <laughs> we're back to the nipple i couldn't i couldn't help it, I we're, couldn't help it. we're back to the nipple I couldn't help it. uh one thing we haven't talked about much yet is the title of the show so obviously it's called legends of tomorrow you probably have gotten that at this point and the fact that the core concept of the show eight superheroes who apparently don't have an impact on the timeline is just inherently ridiculous right like how do these superheroes eight superheroes not have an impact on the timeline that's nonsense so the show the premise of the show itself especially in season one requires some suspension of disbelief because of the super superpowers but the title itself becomes this really neat little metaphor as they stop being people who don't matter and instead come to have a hugely important role of time in part because of how much time they spend fixing it but um we the legends of tomorrow aren't really famous for what they do right like even in later seasons the time bureau is like a secret organization people don't really know about the legends of superheroes the same way they know about the flash or i assume people know about the flash and supergirl they're not like yeah they're not like the their their superhero selves are not secrets uh, they have secret identities i assume but they are not yeah the concept is not secret um whereas that's not true of the legends and most of the legends work is done behind the scenes but they still have these hugely important impacts not on preserving but on creating as well so like the legends are responsible for lord of the rings oh you're right and star wars and star like like they the like those things may have come into existence without them, but at the same time, like their impact, they're like talking to those creators shaped those things and caused those things to happen in a, in like the specific way. And so even if they are the people with the, like the lowest impact on the timeline, they still have a huge impact on the timeline. It's just not them getting credit for it. Mm-hmm. Um, relatable, relatable. Like, even setting aside the impact that they have on the world, they do matter intensely to one another. 
And that's really important, too. And the show goes like out of its way to show that because every time one of them is removed or changed for any reason, things just fall entirely apart. Like we mentioned with the custodians of the chronology and the Charlie's Angels thing. The collective force of the legends is made up of individuals who matter very deeply. If they had all stayed separate, maybe they wouldn't have mattered very much to the time to the timeline at all but by getting together they do matter to the timeline and i think that's part of the thematic like the overarching theme of the show is like the legends of tomorrow is not a show about a bunch of superheroes or who are going to be famous tomorrow it's about a bunch of people who are like saving the world behind the scenes and who are not necessarily becoming famous for it but who are mattering intensely to one another and pushing each other to be better people because if you had left any of those characters like like we said you leave any of those characters out of the equation then you have like a disaster just an utter disaster but if the show had never happened i don't think any of those characters would be happy probably not and they probably wouldn't have any impact on the timeline because they would off be being petty criminals or murderers or living in a dystopia living in a dystopia or being a historian or whatever. Being a historian would be awesome. That's true. Um, but I think one of the thematic thing, like one of the thematic cores of the show is the idea that it doesn't matter if you are like a famous superhero who can run really fast or if you are a famous superhero who can fly. The impact you have on other people as an individual and as a group is more than enough to change the world. It doesn't have to be, you don't have to be able to punch real good or whatever or be a big green man. You don't have to do those things to be a superhero. And I think that's ultimately something that the show says without ever saying. Yeah. So one thing I want to say is that the show feels like it came from a parallel universe where things are just a little bit better than they are here. <laughs> and what I mean by this is that everything in the show just is. Like, this is the baseline I want for TV. Yeah. Even as it's gotten more progress, even as TV has gotten more progressive overall, it's still more like there are standout shows and regular shows. I want this to be the regular show. Yeah, I want this to be the show that exists in the world, and this is what you have. As like this is, this you is build off of this. Mm -hmm. I wish that every like my baseline for TV was this show. Um, not because like not I like I like I said I love this show. It's now one of my favorite shows. Um, not because I think every show has to be exactly like this, but because the, the way that it represents things should be our baseline. I think that the idea, the way that it handles representation and the way that it handles authenticity are really, really well done. And that it is 2019 and there's no reason that I should have to be watching a B-side superhero show to see things like this. Um, I don't want to be surprised anymore and delighted by seeing queer characters or Muslim characters or any other form of representation. I want shows with those things to have the freedom to be lighthearted and fun like this one is. They shouldn't all have to be like prestige TV or anything like that. But even as Legends is lighthearted and fun, it's also really deliberate about the way it approaches issues. Like Zari as a character was brought in because of Trump's election. Oh, that's interesting. Like they they brought that character in because Trump was elected. They're like, well, then we should we need to have a Muslim superhero. Um, they wanted her because be, specifically because of the political climate. And likewise, there are all these little touches that challenge dominant narratives about history, like pointing out that rock and roll was born in black owned clubs yeah, and that there were people of color present in Regency era England. Oh and it gosh. wasn't weird. You're right. 
Like, I didn't even think about that. It's all of these little touches. It's a fantasy show, but it has more of an interest in reality interest in reality than a lot of the grittier material out there, which is too afraid to do things like put people of color in Regency era England because they don't want to face historical accuracy questions, even though that is historically accurate. Or they just don't even think about it because everything that media has taught them is that. Exactly. And they're so worried about their grittiness. They don't care about that. Exactly. And that's what I mean by this is the baseline I want to see for TV is I want to see things that like do little things like that that matter very much. It's very like just like the concept of the show itself. It's very small individual things that ultimately matter a lot because you know, a show like this means that somebody is growing up not thinking that there were no people of color in Regency era England or that Elvis invented rock and roll. Like, it's very small. And like a lot of adults know that that's true. But shows never show that, right? They 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 just kind of um, echo the, the dominant narrative, which is that Elvis invented rock and roll and that um, everybody in Regency era England was white. Um, so that that little stuff matters. People are stupid. That's true. Also, the show just has fun of it, fun with itself. And I have another I love pair of screen caps, which is when um, Sarah and Mona are talking to Zari about her crush on Nate. And All the emojis. <laughs> and Zari is trying to get them to stop. And she says, we are so not passing the Bechdel test right now. And Sarah says, it's okay to talk about guys sometimes. And I love that because that's just like it's true. It's true. There's a lot of there's a lot of other like there's a lot of media that's trying to do really good things, but it's also so caught up in trying to do good things that it fails to be human at the same time. And like this exchange between Zari and Sarah is like very human. They're like, yes, it's a show, but they're also people and they're allowed to do things like talk about guys. Like it's not a crime. Yeah, also it might challenge the way that people use the Bechdel test. Exactly. Because most people don't use it correctly. Right. The Bechdel test is not a... Um, Shut, open, close, done. Yeah, it's and it's it literally comes from like the ability to, to ship two women together. So like it's it never was intended to be this very serious barometer of, of what media is acceptable, which is why people invented the Mako Mori test and all of that. It just goes on and on and on. But I like that the show can have fun with itself. And also the people need franchise superheroes I to like feel when, safe. when they're like, we need help from the other guys. And they're like, they, they, they said that it, they'd pass. Should have done a crossover. Yeah. <laughs> it was very good. It's just like the show, like, as we've said, the show is very frivolous, but it's very serious about its frivolity. It doesn't, it doesn't just make jokes for the sake of making jokes. It makes jokes for a reason. And it treats very serious issues like xenophobia with a light touch so that it doesn't come off as preachy. Sometimes, it, like I said, the Make America Hell Again thing didn't super work for me. I think that doesn't work for you, but I think it works for a lot of people. I agree. I, I think that for the, for people who were like maybe not getting like the analog there, because Ray is is more of like a benign Elon Musk figure yes. in the universe. Um, putting the demon in him and then making him say make America hell again is is pretty on the nose. <laughs> I love all the on they keep saying isn't this a little on the nose throughout the season it was cracking so like they knew what they were doing they knew where they were going with that um like it, getting in the van called the getaway or the RV called the getaway or whatever isn't this a little on the nose <laughs> do you want to also want to know how many times I would love to know how many times they say they make Star Wars references because there's a lot. I, they say, don't tell me the odds a lot. Yeah. There's an oh, also Jaws. They make so many Jaws references. I love We're going to need a bigger ship. 
Um, yeah. I think it's a good show and I love it now. It is a good show and I also love it. I, I was thinking, I was like, well, I don't know if I'll keep up with it. Maybe when it all comes out. But I probably, I'm, I'm always so wait till it all comes out. But I definitely am like, no, I gotta watch it. Yeah. It just feels good. Yeah. It just feels good. I also really liked the, when I, when it clicked with me, the whole app, like yeah. what they were doing with that was really good. Yeah. Especially coming off of watching that one documentary. Yeah. About giving away your information. Has, has, this is a really important question. Has the show converted you to a John Constantine lover? Will I finally have somebody I can go to? I don't think John I was ever anti John Constantine. No, I don't think you were ever. Like, I don't know anybody who loves John Constantine as much as I do. I don't love John Constantine as much as you. I'm so sorry. The only person who but, does is Gary. But you love him a lot. I do love him I a do lot. Love it's a him. high standard. I do love him, but he falls under Ray, who is okay. my favorite. And That's then fair. probably Zari. And then probably Sarah. I love how fun Sarah got to become. Yes, I really love Sarah. She got to become so fun. And I really appreciate that. Yeah. The first season, she's so serious. She with a different voice. Yeah. She's so serious. It's very weird. I mean, she's coming off of her. Her storyline in Arrow was pretty hard. Yeah. <laughs> it was pretty rough. So it made sense for the character. Yeah. But it also makes sense to her to become like what she is now. Yeah. The moral of the story is I love John Constantine. And if you love John Constantine as much as I do at me are they this is a question i don't know if they if they said it in the show when they're time traveling are they not aging just curious i don't know okay there was something that made me think that i can't remember what it was it's i don't know it's so hard probably to say. when they're in the one place the temporal pretty, zone yeah. yeah i don't know it's so hard to figure out time travel narratives they stopped um, trying to make sense. Let, and I, I appreciate sense, that. They stopped trying to explain it. Yeah, I appreciate it because, like, I don't care for the most part. Yeah. As long as it's not, like, something crazy. Um, I'm sorry in this. Like, you could still help somebody. I care as much as the show wants me to care. Yeah. And generally, if they try to make me care too much about the rules of the universe, I will poke a hole in it and it will annoy me. <laughs> But for the most part, the show's just kind of like, well, you can't travel back to your own time because that can cause a problem. And I'm like, yeah, that makes sense. You know? They okay. They still do it. I, they still do it, but most of the time it'll cause an issue. Mm -hmm. You can't travel back further than the... Th like, you can't stop yourself from doing the thing you already did. I'm like, well... You can't kill yourself. Okay, you can't kill yourself, right? Okay. You can't those, kill an ancestor. Yeah, like, those those things all make sense. Yeah. Um, those are rules I can get behind. The, the one major rule in this show that doesn't make any sense and that, like, I have to just put it out of my mind is the fact that so I don't I can't think of a specific example, but say um, the uh, one team is on is on the ship is on the wave rider, right? They're quarterbacking. They're quarterbacking the I don't understand what that means. <laughs> the quarterback makes all the plays and they, oh. they like, kind of like the person that like, like, hey, what are we going to do? OK, so you have the quarterbacker on the on the on the wave rider. Right. And then you have the team on the ground and they're like, hurry we have to hurry and save them. I thought this too. What? It's a time traveling. Sh how do you, how do you hurry? Like when this, a good <laughs> example of this is when they went to go watch the birth of, um, Gray's grandchild. Yeah. And they, ha they had to hurry back. How, how do you hurry? <laughs> <laughs> what? How? <laughs> I thought that too. What? <laughs> that's the that's the big one where I just have to be like, just ignore it. <laughs> I can't. I can't. 
handle it otherwise because my brain just goes like, what? Um, do you have anything else to say about Legends of Tomorrow? No. It's good. That's what I have to say. Trust trust the people out there who are telling you it's good and just skip the first season. I didn't trust them. I was wrong. I was made a fool. Mary was made a fool of. Um, I was also made a fool. So I actually watched Necromancing the Stone, which is, I think, the second episode that Constantine is in. Um, because I was writing an article about Constantine and I wanted to know how he was portrayed in the show, but that there are so many, I didn't realize that there are so many Constantine episodes and that I picked like the worst one because it's the, it's the one where Sarah takes the, the death stone and then like turns into evil death Sarah. And I was like, what is, who is this? And like Constantine is just there with a chicken (laughs) and Gary's there. And I'm like, what is going on it was important if i had if i had chosen just one constantine episode it probably would have been his first appearance where they go into the mental institution for nora which was very good um i liked when he visited his self or his not not his self his um ancestor that was good it was very good (laughs) that was good that was all that's one of those like that's an that's an intra or that's a metatextual reference so a lot of people get frustrated because um constantine's the pronunciation of constantine's name has changed over time because in some comics, he says it's Constantine, rhymes with whatever. Clementine. Clementine, you know. Because he, he may be named after the real emperor or king or whatever, Constantine. And so the fact that they refer, this is your ancestor, Constantine, I was like, that's good. <laughs> um, yeah, con- his the pronunciation of his name and also like his bisexuality are things that have fluctuated over. I have to ask one question. Did you die? When Sarah came and surprised Ava in her like like total femme fatale type yes. of so, that was the scene where I was like, oh my god, Mary, they're literally doing the thing where somebody is like trying to seduce their their partner while the other one is trying to have a serious business meeting, <laughs> and she's like rolling around. Oh, so good, yeah, so, so good. good, so good, so good, so good. Um, so that's gonna do it for this episode. If you liked it. You can find us online at fakeygirlscast.com, which has links to our social media, our Patreon, etc. Um, for our Patreon, if you give us a small amount of money per month, we feel good about ourselves. And you want us to feel good about ourselves, right? Our self-esteem is based on your dollars. I'm just kidding. That's not true. Um, but it does help us like grow the show and um, compensate us for the many hours I spend reading Notes on Camp by Susan Sontag. Uh, next time we'll be doing what we've been up to. So that's fun. You'll find out what we've been up to. I'm going to talk about Constantine some more because the next thing on my to-do list was a Hellblazer collection. So I hope you're ready to hear more about John Constantine. (laughs) Um, And then we'll be talking about a perfect television show. Oh, yes. The OC. I've been wanting to do this one so bad. I'm so excited. Just because I wanted an excuse to rewatch this show. I think it's the fifth time rewatching it. Wow. You could probably just do the highlight reel then. No, I don't want to, though. You don't want to do the highlight reel. You could skip all the Oliver's. <laughs> no, I like... I I don't dislike it as much as you dislike it. Yeah. We're, I have a higher tolerance for that kind of stuff. Yeah. I'm on season three now, which is... Bonkers. This, why is Johnny... Which one? I don't remember Johnny. The public school friend. Oh, yeah. Anyway, check. <laughs> I can't express the, the face that I'm making. Um, but yeah, so we'll be doing what we've been up to and then we'll be talking about the OC. The only hiccup in that might be if it takes us too long to get through the OC because did you know there's a hundred episodes of the OC and they're all 45 minutes long? Because it's true. 
So well, I can probably skip some stuff to get. Yeah. Um, I'm in season three now, so I have a season and a half to go. Episode four, of season one. Oh boy, <laughs> I just started it though. Yeah, so um, I had to finish Legends. We will probably let you know by the next what we've been up to, whether or not it'll be the OC immediately afterward. Um, so that's it for this episode. Catch you on the flip side. Bye.